Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Arimus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, September 18th. On today's show, we'll talk about the recent news that Instagram's founders, Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger, will be leaving the company. Uh, and there's some reporting that suggests that's at least in part due to clashes with Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg over the future direction of the app. Facebook bought Instagram in 2012 for $1 billion. It sounded like an awful lot at the time, but it's now worth an estimated $100 billion. Good investment. We will also discuss tech talks on Capitol Hill this week between the Justice Department and federal and state law enforcement on political bias, antitrust and privacy on social media, as well as a hearing in the Senate scheduled for Wednesday on how technology companies use and misuse consumer data. Plus, Sundar Pichai, CEO of Google, is headed to D.C. for private talks with Republican lawmakers. Then we're going to spend the rest of the podcast talking about, well, podcasts. The last couple of weeks have witnessed some dramatic changes in the podcast industry, including right here at our employer, The Slate Group. Last week, BuzzFeed axed its entire podcast department. Meanwhile, Vox Media did just the opposite, saying they're going to be doubling their podcast output this fall. To help us make sense of what's going on in the world of podcasts, we'll be joined by media writer Nick Kwa, who pens the weekly newsletter Hot Pod. It's considered required reading for many in the podcast industry. And lastly, we will have Don't Close My Tabs, as we always do, with some of the most interesting stories we found online this week. Okay, Will, happy Tuesday and happy Wednesday to people who are listening on Wednesday when we drop the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. How are things out there in the East Bay? It is a warm fall, as it always is, and also... Uh, a bit of a shakeup, at least in our circles, because Instagram, my personal favorite social media platform, is uh, losing its leadership, right? Yeah, that's right. So the co-founders, Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger, who stayed on when they sold Instagram t- to Facebook for a billion dollars back in 2012, are finally leaving the company six years later. And when I first heard that, I was like, oh, you know, six years, they were there a long time. They probably just want to move on and do something new. But there quickly emerged a flurry of reporting suggesting that there was something amiss. Uh, It was clear that this announcement had not been well planned and advanced. In fact, it leaked out uh, and was reported late Monday night. And uh, it seems like there were clashes between uh, the Instagram leadership and the leadership of Facebook. Facebook had recently installed some of its own top deputies in number two, number three positions within Instagram. And I guess the reporting is that Systrom and Krieger felt marginalized within their own within their own division. What's interesting to me here, among many things that are interesting, is that Instagram seems to have been a smash hit for Facebook, at least in the past two years or so. I know that I personally kind of adopted it a few years ago, didn't use it for a couple years. And then in the past two years, I've been kind of addicted to it and love it and have stopped using Facebook. Do you have any idea of how successful Instagram has been for Facebook recently? Well, Instagram is still much smaller than Facebook proper, both in terms of the number of users and the revenue it's bringing in. But 
lately it's been the growth engine for Facebook, the company. It is up to about a billion users in its own right. And uh, Facebook actually does not report how much ad revenue is coming through Instagram specifically, but analysts have pegged that number somewhere between 4 billion and 16 billion. I think the latest I saw was 8 billion in ad revenue for 2018 is is one uh, projection that we've had. That's about 9% of the entire company's revenue. So it's big, but it's 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 actually more important than that makes it sound again because Instagram is the part that's still that's still growing fast whereas Facebook at least in developed markets like the United States and and Europe has pretty much gone flat in terms of in terms of user growth and engagement lately. And so do we have any sense of what the tensions were between Instagram founders and Facebook now? I guess Facebook wants to invest more in Instagram. They want to see Instagram grow. There were rumors that there was going to be kind of a regram feature on Instagram, which really could invite uh, clutter into the feed uh, because, you know, and it could invite misinformation into the feed and viral mis- misinformation, especially if people start regramming things that are untrue. One of the things that it seems to have kept Instagram kind of pure or at least peaceful or pacific by, by my standards is that uh, there's no sharing of other people's stuff. Right. That's, so there, there were reports recently that Instagram is working on a regram feature, and, and that's something that Systrom had explicitly rejected in the past. He said that he felt that it took away from the authenticity of the platform if you couldn't be sure that the stuff you were seeing from your friends was actually created by your friends. So that certainly might have been one of the points of tension. Um, there were also... Uh, I think management issues, I think with Facebook now leaning more heavily on Instagram to drive its growth, the company really seemed to want its own top deputies helping to run Instagram and make decisions there. Recently, they had moved Adam Mosseri, who used to run Facebook's news feed and who we we interviewed on the show many months ago, uh, as the uh, head of product for Instagram. Uh, Mosseri, again, is is a deputy of Chris Cox, and, and he's through that sort of Facebook side of the chain of command, Mark Zuckerberg, Chris Cox. And uh, so he there are some reports that he didn't see eye to eye with Systrom and Krieger either. Right. And we have seen some reports of Instagram TV, which is a new product that launched under Mosari, uh, actually recommending videos with uh, potential child exploitation in it. So, you know, as Facebook is starting to inch its way into Instagram, where we're starting to see problems that have uh, really hit other social networks quite hard, infect Instagram. And one of my fears, and I think the fear of many people who have found Instagram kind of a peaceful place to go uh, to get away from the mess of all the other social media, uh, is that the Facebook, the Facebookization, or however you want to say that, of Instagram is, is now incoming. Right. And so one thing that I'm I'm curious about is to what extent is this narrative accurate that, that Krieger and Systrom are sort of taking a principled stand here and saying, hey, you're ruining Instagram by making it too much like Facebook? Or to what extent are we reading into that based on a, another recent similar situation where the founders of right. WhatsApp, the messaging app, uh, left Facebook and then subsequently at least one of them really sort of turned against Facebook. One of them uh, tweeted, delete Facebook um, after having left the company. Uh, so clearly they were they were upset. They were disillusioned with what Facebook was doing with their company. I don't think we know for sure yet that that's the case with Systrom and Krieger. They're being a little bit more tight-lipped. I don't think we'll see them tweet, delete Facebook anytime soon, but I guess you never know. Yeah, who knows how this is going to turn out, but my sense is that there is more reporting that will surface some more details because people tend to talk, and I look forward to hearing what happens. And in the meantime, I look forward to continue using Instagram until it starts to suck. 
Let's put our smartphones down for a second, though, and look at what's happening in Washington, D.C., where once again a caravan of stars from Silicon Valley will be headed there this week. Uh, And there was a meeting actually today, not with folks from Silicon Valley, but hosted by Jeff Sessions of the Justice Department and uh, law enforcement leaders and attorney generals from states across the country to discuss... Dun dun dun! Bias on social media, <laughs> right? The uh, topic Our du favorite jour. Topic. Yes, yes, or at least President Trump's favorite topic. You know, he does like to say that one of the uh, reasons why there is negative coverage of him, or one of the reasons why people uh, think poorly of him, is because the information that's available and made available by the social platforms is biased. Well, the Justice Department has been inquiring into that, and they invited a meeting, as I said, of uh, folks from across the country that are in law enforcement and in attorney general positions to discuss bias on social media. But the attorney generals wanted to continue to change the conversation away from bias on social media and into consumer welfare, where perhaps they have more of a lever of change to pull. That's interesting. So what, Jeff Sessions, was it just Republican attorneys general or was it attorneys general of both parties who were invited to meet with Sessions? Uh, there was an attorney general from California there and who I is, is not a Republican. So it was of, of both parties. Uh, and there was also the head of the FTC was there. Uh, and another topic that was discussed was antitrust. So basically, folks were discussing kind of what buttons can they pull or rather what levers can they pull to uh, enact some sort of regulatory force or some sort of uh, legal action against these incredibly powerful companies. And it seemed that regulators were concerned about whether or not the privacy ramifications of the massive data collection of these companies are actually hurting uh, hurting people that live in their state. All right. And that's not the only action in Washington that concerns big tech. There's also a, uh, a hearing in the Senate on Wednesday. Is that right? Yes, it's the Senate Commerce Committee. It is a hearing entitled Examining Safeguards for Consumer Data Privacy. I think it's a very exciting hearing, at least on its face and by its title, because... You, you, know, <laughs> you would think it was exciting. I do think it's exciting because we're talking about, again, as I always say, the most powerful companies in the world that are so powerful because they have collected a massive amount of data with very little regulatory scrutiny for many, many years. And now we're seeing a bit of a taste to kind of rein in their power and hopefully protect you know, our privacy privacy and the people who depend on these companies to communicate with with others. Uh, that said, this hearing is a little sketch to me. <laughs> why? Wait, why is it sketch? It's sketch because of who they invited. So um, this was convened by U.S. Senator John Thune, a Republican from South Dakota, who's the chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee uh, on Science and Transportation and Commerce. So sorry, I didn't say that quite right. But but he's the chairman of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation. He convened the hearing and the people that he invited include uh, Global Public Policy Council from AT&T or rather Vice President, uh, the Vice President and the Associate General Counsel of Amazon, the Chief Privacy Officer of Google, the Global Data Protection Officer and Associate Legal Director of Twitter, the vice president of software technology for Apple, and the senior vice president of policy and external affairs of Charter Communications. There's some people who I think are missing from this conversation. And those people are those who are acting in the interest of the public. As opposed to the interest of their shareholders. Yeah. So everyone Because those are all corporate... Titans exactly. Yeah. Everyone yeah. who I just named are all the witnesses are uh, corporate folks. And so they're going to be testifying on this incredibly important issue that really, you know, 
fuels so many things uh, in the country, whether it's elections or whether it's, uh, you know, racist uh, ad profiling and, and targeting or, or police surveillance that is emboldened by corporate surveillance. You know, so many uh, issues kind of touch the 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 uh, nexus of consumer privacy and and yet we don't see folks from the public interest community being invited to these meetings. Yeah, and I saw an interesting piece that was written partly about the lead up to this hearing. Um, this was by Natasha Singer in the New York Times uh, over the weekend. The headline was, Just Don't Call It Privacy. And she was making the case that the word privacy obscures what's really at stake here when we're talking about companies whose entire business, let's face it, revolves around surveilling us all around the web, uh, uh, keeping track of what we buy and where we go in the real world, putting all of that together to build these det- detailed profiles of our lives, our interests, uh, and then service advertising based on all of that. Singer said, it's a little like asking sharks to hold forth on <laughs> veganism. She said the real problem here is unfettered data exploitation and the potential bad consequences of that, like unequal consumer treatment, financial fraud, identity theft, manipulative marketing. In other words, the privacy horse has kind of left the barn. What we really need to be talking about here is is the misuse of our data and, and the use of our own data against us in various ways. So I completely agree, and I've written this uh, numerous times, uh, and particularly in a, a feature for Slate a few months ago uh, about kind of the failure of privacy watchdogs to mount a substantial campaign uh, to, in terms of kind of protecting consumer data and, and really focusing on the harms of data collection as opposed to on the right to privacy. And the reason why that's a failure, and I haven't read this piece in the New York Times, although it's in a tab that I super plan to read it, uh, but the reason why talking about privacy uh, doesn't really resonate with a lot of people is because although it's it's kind of part of our First Amendment right, uh, it's not a right that everybody gets to enjoy in practice, right? Because of racial profiling or because uh, maybe you are on welfare and when you require food stamps or anything like that, you have to give a tremendous amount of data to the state. You don't get a lot of privacy. Like for a lot of people, privacy is just not part of their lived experience. What may be part of people's lived experience, though, is exploitation. What may be a part of people's lived experience, though, are are harms. And when we talk about privacy, we're really talking about harms to the Constitution or harms to our rights as opposed to harms to our communities. And I completely agree that we really need to reframe our conversation in this to talk about how it affects our lives and how it affects people's lives. You know, uh, data brokers prey on the elderly, right? They they actually call old people and and who are confused sometimes and not used to the phone call. And I don't mean to say old people in a disparaging way, but people who are not expecting the call and uh, and then get data from them and then can use that towards kind of predatory marketing. Uh, you know, the AARP could be involved in, uh, in, in kind of a privacy fight, right? Or, or in kind of a data protection fight. If we broadened the way we talked about this, we would have a more diverse range of characters, I think, uh, also discussing uh, how to affect the law. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Nick Kwa. Thank you. 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Today, we're going to delve into the world of podcasts. Last week, Serial, a podcast from This American Life, released the first two episodes from its third season and got almost 3 million downloads that day. That's arguably the most successful podcast ever in the still relatively short history of the median. Even Kim Kardashian listens, apparently. I also read recently that folks at the White House, by the way, are listening to Slow Burn, uh, the podcast from our Slate colleague, Leon Nafok. Um, That was a, a... surprising revelation for for him and for the other people who work on that show. Uh, But while the the success of shows like Serial and The Daily from The New York Times might paint a picture of a podcast boom, it's hard to tell exactly what the long-term nature of the podcast industry might look like. Uh, There is good news still going around. Earlier this week, Vox Media announced it was going all in on podcasts. That media company, which produces shows like The Ezra Klein Show and The Verge Cast, is going to be doubling its podcast output this fall. They're going to bring in a bunch of new sports podcasts from SB Nation and new original content like Recode's Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. But the news these days is mixed. Last week, BuzzFeed announced that they'll be cutting their entire podcast department to focus more on video content that they produce for sites like Netflix and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, that was a, a sad news for a lot of folks in the industry. Uh, they Their podcast team at BuzzFeed was affectionately known as the, as the Pod Squad, and they were credited with some groundbreaking shows like Another Round, uh, which was hosted by Tracy Clayton and Heaven Nagatu. And the podcast shakeup has affected our own company as well. Earlier this month, Panoply, which is Slate's sister company, announced they would no longer be producing podcasts. Instead, they'll be focusing on the platform, uh, their, their successful podcast platform called Megaphone, which is essentially what producers use to, to post episodes every week, insert ads, show notes, track downloads. Uh, our producer does it for this show. Um, shortly after that news, it was announced that Jacob Weisberg, the editor-in-chief of the Slate Group and also host of the Trumpcast podcast, is leaving Slate to start a new podcast production company with Malcolm Gladwell. But anyway, you would know all of this if you subscribe to the weekly newsletter written by this week's guest, Nick Kwa. His newsletter called Hot Pod takes a weekly dive into the podcast industry. Kwa has been publishing it since 2014. I want to say that's like before it was cool. It's like it's right when podcasts started to get cool, I would say. And also writes about podcasts for Vulture. Previously, he, he has worked for Business Insider, BuzzFeed, and the aforementioned Panoply Media. Nick Kwa, welcome to If Then. How's it going? All right, Nick, it's great to have you here. Now, the big question that's going on in the podcast industry right now is whether there is a bubble, whether there was a bubble. If so, is it bursting? What are your thoughts on this idea that podcasting had its boom and now there's sort of a a retrenchment or a pullback? Uh, well, it's a sort of an uh, interesting situation if you sort of think through what you mean, what one means when they say a bubble. Um, definitely, we've been seeing a lot of sort of really interesting industry shakeups. Um, and I think what we're seeing is less of a bubble and more of a situation where the industry is, quote unquote, like maturing. 
Um, one of the sort of the core puzzle at the center of podcasting has always been the fact that it has a pretty low barrier to entry. And as a result, it's pretty hard to sort of build a business. Like there's a, there's a high barrier to scale as a result of everybody being able to compete in the same pool. So what we're seeing is a series of publishers, of, uh, a series of podcast publishers basically, you know, reshuffling their decks um, given a sort of increased competitive environment for podcasting. So of all the stories that you just listed, uh, it's also worth uh, noting that iHeart Media went ahead and acquired Stuff Media a couple of weeks ago, and that's the parent company of the Atlanta-based podcast giant How Stuff Works. Um, and Endeavor, the big sort of entity, media and entertainment conglomerate, recently rolled out their own audio division. So what we're seeing, I think, um, is more of a situation where there is a bigger awareness that if you're going to win the content side of this business, you have to sort of really invest. Um, and that kind of forcing dynamics to change within the podcast ecosystem. And when you say invest, what do you mean? Do you mean not doing the few people sitting around having a conversation type shows and doing more heavily produced shows? Right. I mean, heavily produced is one way to do it. Um, and also it depends what you mean by heavily produced. This is a situation where, um, you know, if you're going to make something, um, it's it, you're going to have to sort of spend a bit of time, resources and, you know, money to make sure that that thing gets in front of audiences. And so, you know, you can't if you build a TV show, for example, and you put it out into a public access channel, um, it's going to be pretty tough for you to sort of, you know, rise in the age of peak TV. And so this is kind of a situation where um, because it's such a competitive, uh, you know, stacked market full of really high quality shows and really sort of uh, and niche shows of, of many stripes finding their own ways in this ecosystem, you're going to have to sort of work a little harder to figure out how you're going to fit into the, this content world. Um, the question of whether there's a bubble should actually speak more about the money that's coming into the space. There is more money coming to the space. Um, spoke to a bunch of advertisers uh, who buy on podcasts recently over the past week. Um, and there hasn't that I've been told that hasn't been more demand. Um, there, you know, advertisers are still really interested in the space. Um, but it's a situation where, you know, that money can only spread across so many people. And because anybody sort of basically could publish podcasts, um, that money could be stretched pretty thin. And so um, to get in front of an advertiser and get their interest, you're going to have to do a little bit more than um, just basically build a show around two or three people talking. So let's rewind a little bit. When podcasts first came out, there was a lot of hype around the idea of a, of a new publishing platform, an entirely new medium where you could download uh, you could download podcasts and, and listen to them on your phone or your computer. Uh, and then the hype kind of died down for a long time. And there were some people doing podcasts and some people listening to them, but it wasn't really a, a cultural phenomenon. It wasn't a mass medium. And then maybe around the time that the first season of Serial came out, there was a, a, a rethinking in the industry of the, the possibility that maybe podcasts could be a cultural phenomenon. Serial captured a lot of people's imagination. People were talking about it around water coolers. Um, we've now seen a, a cascade of other shows that, that really go deep in terms of storytelling or investigative reporting. Um, what got you interested in podcasts in the first place? And, and what has it been like? What has the ride been like as you as you started writing about this sort of niche medium <laughs> and have seen it have seen it grow uh, uh, dramatically since then? So I actually started listening to podcasts uh, when I was in college uh, back in 2009-2010. Um, I'm actually not from this country. And so when I first got here for college, um, I discovered uh, basically narrative radio and public radio for the first time. Um, and coming from a place that didn't have that sort of radio culture, I was super fascinated by it. But also given the fact that I was a, you know, um, 
an undergrad walking around campus, I don't really have an analog radio. And so podcasting was a way to tap into those programs. And that in itself sort of led me into this wider world of, you know, hobbyists and comedians and people in their second sort of creative careers producing stuff for this really interesting burgeoning space. Um, there was an initial sort of podcast boom, as I understand it, in the 2006 to 2008 or 9 era, um, back when there was an initial hype around this new media. But um, it's one of those situations where when, even when the hype went away, there was a sort of steady base of people, you know, still plugging away at the at the forum and at the medium, trying to build a business out of it. We see some of those businesses still around today, and some of them have grown on to be you know, giants in the space, Stitcher, which and the company now known as Stitcher, formerly known as Midroll and formerly known as also Earwolf. Um, those com- those sort of sets of names and companies were built during this era where prior to 2014, it felt like the hype went away. So it's a situation where if you're talking about the bubble, um, if it's a business bubble, if it's a hype bubble or an attention bubble, I think we are looking at a situation where um, – Many people who have thought that podcasting was sort of an easy route to a business or a um, a revenue driver are, you know, sort of beginning to realize the unrealisticness of that expectation. And they're beginning to um, sort of understand their place in relation to what it takes to actually build a business in this in this arena. And, you know, I guess I don't really understand the economics of of podcasting. Like, it seems like there's a lot of a, an interest from advertisers to advertise on podcasts and that, you know, people who hear kind of these sincere plugs from podcasters do tend to to go for the products that they plug. And maybe that's why. But are they really that popular? Like how popular are podcasts? Uh, well, I mean, it depends on uh, what you mean by popular, right? Like, right. Because I, I don't listen to that many podcasts, to be honest with you, on my podcast. <laughs> Well, I mean, for every one of you, there are a bunch of other people who do. Um, and right, it's a situation right. in which, like, they, we have to sort of make a distinction between, num- like, hard numbers of people listening to a thing or consuming a thing and also just sort of the broader cultural conversation around a thing. The Big Bang Theory, for example, is a is an extremely financially viable television show um, and it's also widely, widely watched. But it's one of those situations where if you were to look at certain aspects of of the sort of television media lens, you you might not actually pick up on that because it's not sort of talked about in, in the critical ecosystem. But, you know, 1.4 million people downloaded one episode, I mean, the first episode of the new season of Serial um, within the first 14 hours. And there were two episodes that came out the same day and both of them were, got the same number of, of, of downloads. And so it's a situation where, you know, it's it's a pretty popular and powerful medium for a lot of people. But also the selling point for podcasting is the fact that you have to go out and build a relationship with it, the fact that you have to seek it out. And it tends to drive really strong relationships between listeners and um, the creative, the host or the creative side or, or whoever is producing on the other end. And that's something within this current moment in the media, in like media writ large, um, is something that's relatively uncommon. If you think about the sort of, you know, superfluous experiences of Twitter the sort of loud, blaring advertising experiences and relationships that you get at broadcast radio, this sort of tight relationship and, and strength of intimacy is something that's that's quite unique. Right. It's so interesting to me because I come from a radio background, a local community radio background, where we would actually have intimate relationships, I would say, with our listeners who were very familiar mm-hmm. with what we were talking about and very familiar with us as well. And we sounded local and and 
And people wanted to advertise with us because uh, listeners really knew where we were coming from and what we were talking about. Uh, Mm -hmm. As localism died in radio, I now see the World Wide Web and podcasting. And it's just so different because with radio, it's hyper-local by design. Like People who are going to listen to what we were talking about, the people that would care about it were the only people that could listen, right? Right, right. And sort of the consolidation in that industry, right, um, and killed that localism. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The web is finding something on the World Wide Web is just a much broader net. And it it just seems for me anyway, much more difficult to uh, to figure out, you know, what I even want to reach for or what I what I want to find. Right. I mean, I have this my own relationship with the Internet is such that I have my circuits now and it's sort of a little hard for me to stumble into something new or something that really sort of reshapes the way I think about the Internet. Um, but you know, it's it's sort of it's super interesting in the sense that with with podcasting, we are watching a bunch of publishers make a play to be mass media. They they want to sort of be the biggest um, players in a room and to sort of break the culture in a certain way. Like the Daily is a is a is a really good example of a podcast that's kind of knocking at the door of being mass media, right? Uh, of something that's of popular culture right now. But um, as sort of evidenced by the communities built by the BuzzFeeds podcast, um, it's like there's a potential with podcasting to create or recreate that sense of localism or recreate that sense of communities. It's just that um, with the way that, you you know, advertising needs go on the Internet, the monetary incentives are not there just yet to facilitate that kind of experimentation and, and design. Let's talk for a second about who's listening to podcasts and how. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what we know of the demographics of podcast listeners in general and also what kind of devices they're they're listening on these days? I mean, obviously, I mistakenly said earlier that people, uh, when podcasts first came out, you would download them onto your phone. I don't think that actually the smartphone wasn't even a thing back then or the iPhone wasn't at least. You would download them onto your iPod, um, which is not right. a device that, that anybody really has anymore. Um, what are people listening on today and, and who's doing that listening? Uh, well, the demographic of podcast listeners they tend to skew young. Um, they tend to they tend to be sort of fairly affluent, well educated. Um, they tend to be white. Um, it it they used to it used to skew predominantly male, and now it's sort of equaled out over time. Um, Edison Research has uh, done uh, sort of an annual study on podcasting for a number of years now, and something that they've um, discovered this year is that it's shifted towards the direction of looking a lot like the demographic breakdown of the rest of the country. It has slightly diversified in terms of gender. It has, um, it doesn't do racial sort of, it doesn't do so democratic, uh, demographic studies based on race. Um, and, but you know, the sort of, I, my guess right now is that it's, podcasting is still very much not that diverse and where there are people colors or, or sort of minority groups listening, it's, it's largely a very a, like sort of a quote unquote niche or a smaller you know, podcasts that that we're able to cultivate those communities. Um, and as far as how people listen to podcasts right now, it's predominantly driven by the phone. Um, the majority of, of of all podcast listening is still understood to be driven through the Apple Podcast app that comes pre baked into your iPhone. Um, where it goes from here and how that will look in two or three years um, is a really big question that a lot of people in the industry are looking at. Spotify is beginning to um, participate a little more and try to sort of edge its way into being a distributor of podcasts. Uh, we're begin- we're, we will eventually see something from Pandora, which has been making some noise about wanting to to become a distributor of podcasts in a meaningful way. Um, and that's not to mention Google that just um, sort of 
integrated audio and podcast uh, searches into its own sort of search engine infrastructure. So we are we're beginning to see, we're at the very sort of verge of all these things sort of shifting in a really meaningful way, which in my mind sort of will end up uh, reconstructing the nature of the relationship between the podcast publisher and the podcast listener in a couple of years. So we're seeing publishers shake things up and, and hiring and firing people and in all different levels. But we're also seeing, as you mentioned, platforms beginning to consolidate. When I say platforms, I mean the listening platforms, which are kind of the middlemen between publishers and the listener. And, you know, this mm-hmm. week we did hear news of Cirrus uh, asking to buy or wanting to buy Pandora for $3.5 billion. And as you said, Spotify is getting more into podcasts and Apple is the reigning king of podcasts. What does consolidation on the listening platform side mean for the future of the podcast? podcast industry? I, the sort of worst case scenario for this particular version of the future is that um, podcasting becomes significantly less open than it, than it was. So for many reasons, largely you know, historical aberration, uh, podcasting flourished specifically beneath the sort of, um, how, how do you say, the benevolent stewardship of, of Apple. Um, it by sort of by sort of various choice the choices that Apple made over the past couple of the past ten years by sort of integrating podcasts into its iTunes infrastructure and then sort of bundling the Apple podcast infrastructure into the phone by default. It has sort of fostered um, the ecosystem of open like of open podcast publishing uh, for a long time, and that's sort of why right now at this moment uh, the majority of podcast listening is still driven through Apple Podcasts because. Um, the podcast publishing community was deeply incentivized to publish on Apple's platform. Um, and, uh, you know, and a lot of people who use Apple products tend to find podcasts um, uh, within the context of that ecosystem. But Apple has never, you know, exercised a, lo- a hard touch with podcasting. It's never, um, it's never sort of asked for a cut of any revenues that, that sort of, that it, you know, that podcasters might get out of publishing through its platform. It doesn't determine winners or losers in a very direct way. And so uh, should Spotify or Google or, you know, Pandora um, really sort of increase their distributional power in a meaningful way within the podcast industry, we might see that openness alter or reduce a little bit or tremendously. It, it really depends on what policies that each of these platforms will end up implementing with podcasts over time um, and what and how podcast publishers sort of respond to that. Um, it's also entirely possible that we'll see some sort of balkanization or like a breaking up of different podcast publishing types, uh, breaking off into different platforms uh, as different platforms try to experiment with like paywalls and stuff like that. All right. Nick Hua, thank you so much for joining us and for explaining this uh, fascinating industry that that few of us understand, even if we might be in the industry. Ourselves. Yeah, you should uh, should remedy that. It's uh, You got to know the game you're playing. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. <laughs> All right. Take it easy. One final quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. All right, April, what tab could you not close this week? 
So this is a tab I couldn't close because I'm actually still in the middle of reading it. But so far, it is incredible, as expected, by Jane Meyer of The New Yorker. And it is entitled How Russia Helped Swing the Election for Trump. It's one of those fantastic, sprawling New Yorker pieces that you need to dedicate a good hour and a half to sit down with. But so far, it is a deep dive into how... Russian hackers and cyber attacks and trolls at the Internet Research Agency through the election. And this is something that we have been covering, you know, for the past two years, uh, beat by beat. And uh, she uh, is making a case and, and, you know, as as through her reporting, that it was incredibly influential and uh and it's, so far, it's a fascinating read. I look forward to finishing it. I'm sorry I have not finished it yet. It just came out yesterday, and it was a busy day on Monday. So, again, we're recording on Tuesday. Uh, so that's not my only tab because I'm not done with it. My other tab is from The Guardian. It's entitled, Sorry, I'm Scuba Diving. Salesforce CEO criticized over response to border contract backlash. Uh, the Guardian <laughs> obtained emails about Mark Benioff uh, handling protests uh, about links to U.S. immigration agency. Uh, So I guess Salesforce, not I guess, but Salesforce has multi-million dollar contracts with Customs and Border Patrol. They tried to donate to a nonprofit in Texas that helps with immigration issues. That nonprofit rejected the donation from Benioff uh, because of the contract that he has with CPB. And then The Guardian got emails about what Salesforce CEO was doing in response to the contract backlash. Uh, He actually apologized because he was apparently underwater with tanks on his back. So uh, a telling story about kind of how Silicon Valley or at least how Benioff, who is a titan in Silicon Valley, thinks about his communication to people who are managing national crises like the immigration crisis and how seriously he takes protests. I recommend folks read this uh, very readable uh, news piece that came out today on Tuesday. Uh, Will, what tab could you not close this week? All right. My tab is one that is still not closed because I have not finished it. But Okay, it was good. I'm not alone. Okay. <laughs> We're both a little out of sorts this week. I think we've both been working on some some long uh, uh, enterprise stories. Not an excuse, but uh, that's the reason I haven't finished this piece. Uh, but it was it's it's fascinating. It's the secret history of outcasts, speaker box the love below, the last truly great double album. This is from okplayer.com, okay. uh, which is a hip hip hop website that was started by uh, Questlove of the Roots way way back in the day. I think in like that. I don't know when the website started, actually, but the OK Player Collective has been around since the late 80s. Um, and they uh, went and interviewed all of these different collaborators who ha- who played a part in this epic double album. It came at a time when there was some tension uh, between Big Boy and Andre, and uh, the the group Outcast was starting to come apart. But they they got together and and just created this incredible, weird sloppy, messy, amazing piece of art. Um, it reminded me a little bit of uh, The Last Waltz, um, the, the great final oh, band yeah. uh, breakup <laughs> concert where... With Neil it, Young with Coke on his nose. <laughs> <laughs> there, were lots of, there were lots of great cameos. Um, anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating piece. I'm not finished with it yet, but I highly recommend it on okplayer.com. Oh, okay. I definitely want to check that out. Um, good suggestion. So lots to read and uh, and stuff that we have to finish reading as well. But that does it for our show this week. We hope y'all enjoyed it. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. 
You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. We do read all of them, even if we're not that good at getting back to you. Please say hi. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Orimus. April, I noticed that somebody had tweeted at us and they put two L's in your name, like April Laser. So I wonder if we should clarify that it's April Laser with one L. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's just an old handle, but I still use it. All right. Thanks again to our guest, Nick Kwa. You can sign up for his newsletter at hotpodnews.com. You can follow him on Twitter at N-W-Q-U-A-H, N-W-Kwa. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We really appreciate your time in telling us how we're doing or telling other people how we're doing by clicking on five stars, please. (laughs) And now you know why everybody says Apple Podcasts or whatever other platform you listen, because we heard from Nick today how Apple has become the dominant force in podcasting. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Cody Hamilton for engineering here in Berkeley, California. And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios here on Main Street in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.